Right. Well, as, as you may know, Seventh-day Adventist churches, um, we have this policy of doing business meetings. Like whenever we need to make some big, important decisions, um, we will call a business meeting. And typically this happens once a year, and we, we talk about some really exciting stuff like approving budgets and, and plans and things like that. And, and so as, as leaders, we, we kind of joke and we say, you know, when, when everything is going really well, you can basically count on just about no one showing up <laughs> to a business meeting. Um, but when you have a business meeting where there's a lot of people showing up and there's no food, it usually means something's going on. Like, there's usually a problem happening. Well, this was one of those well-attended business meetings. For some time, this particular church had allowed a Spanish-speaking group to meet in one of their back rooms, and as long as the Spanish-speaking group was meeting in one of the back rooms, the church was happy. But over time, this Spanish-speaking group grew. They were inviting new people, and they were bringing their friends, and, and they started to grow. And, and to accommodate their growing numbers, they needed to look to a bigger place. Their, their back room wasn't—the back room of that church, the English-speaking church, wasn't, wasn't enough. And so they requested to use the sanctuary of the English-speaking church at a time when the English-speaking service was not taking place. Now, some of the people, some of the leaders in the English-speaking community, in the, in, in the, the church, rather, um, they were in favor of the request, but others were adamantly opposed to this request. So, to settle the matter, the church had a business meeting, and this business meeting was well-attended. The people came in, and, and you could feel the—well, t- I wasn't there, but, but the, the tension could be felt in the room. There were the people who were clearly— in favor of allowing the Spanish-speaking group to use their sanctuary at a time that they weren't using it. There were people who were clearly opposed to it. And so there was tension in the room. And and as the discussion began, it it started to become heated at times. There was was emotions that were there and that was coming out. And it became really clear that the discussion was not moving in a direction that was going to bring consensus. It was looking really bad. It was looking like a split was about to take place in this church. And, and you know, the, the congregation, they're, they're just there. They're, they're having this business meeting, and it just does not feel good, and people have expressed their opinions, and, and it's just clear that there's a, there's a division that's in the church taking place. Just then, a little boy, a nine-year-old boy, true story, nine-year-old boy, raised his hand. And the pastor looked at the nine-year-old boy and said, well, please, share. why don't you share what's on your heart? And the nine-year-old boy asked this question. He said, I don't, I don't really understand why we wouldn't let them use our sanctuary, because aren't we all brothers? And there was a long pause after he asked that question. Shortly after he asked that, I mean, long, because he exposed the truth. There was, there was hypocrisy that was going on. And it was exposed, and, and everybody knew it. God moved through that little boy. Because shortly after that, one of the members who <laughs> happened to be related to this little boy— um, who was adamantly opposed to the Spanish-speaking group using the sanctuary, said, 
we, retr- we retract our objection. We feel like, feel like this is what we need to do. And the request was granted. Now, before this meeting, I'm sure that this nine-year-old boy never dreamed that his comet would, be- would bring unity to his divided church. Pretty sure he never dreamed of that. I mean, he wasn't viewed as a church leader. Perhaps people looked at him and said, oh, well, son, you're the, fu- you're the church of tomorrow. You're the, you're the future of the church. People didn't view him as a church leader. And yet, God worked through him to do something that the pastor, that the elders, that the church leaders were not able to do. God worked through him in a powerful way. Well, as we consider the needs that are in our world today, people that need our help, issues that need to be spoken to, ministries that need to be supported, new initiatives that need to be brought about to be able to, to bring healing and to, to broken people, to bring growth. It's easy to think, it's easy to look at those things and think, you know, someone else should really go do that because I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified to, to do those things, to do the important things. But the truth is, no matter who you are, no matter how young you are, whether you're just like this nine-year-old boy, maybe you're just getting started in life, or whether you're a mature believer in Christ, no matter what your background, whether you're a church leader, or whether this is the first time you've ever stepped in a church service, the truth is God can work through you to do great things for his kingdom. That is the truth. He can do it. For the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament book of Amos. Yes, Amos. And much like today, the society that Amos lived in suffered from injustice. They were examples of people in power oppressing people who were weak. There were examples of rich people who were taking advantage of poor people. There was dishonest business that was going on. Women were being abused. People were being treated as slaves. There was cruelty that was happening. There was a lack of human decency. There was injustice. And someone needed to call people to justice. God chose Amos to do that. He raised up Amos for this task. And as we look at Amos' life and at, at his ministry, we find some really relevant teachings for us today. Those of us who are living as we are at the end of time. This is a message for God's church. As we begin this morning, we're going to take a look at who Amos was. Who was this guy? We're going to take a look at him and how his life demonstrates that anyone can be qualified to serve and to do great things for God's kingdom. Right, so that's the title of the message, Qualified to Serve. And before we open the book of Amos and and look at what the text says to us, I'd like to just invite you to pause with me for prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to turn our attention to you because you have the words of life. You speak truth to us, and your truth dispels the lies that we are so prone to believing. I pray, God, that your spirit would speak and that we would hear you. In Jesus' name, amen invite you to turn in your Bibles to Amos 1, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have pew Bibles. <laughs> yes, they are back. And that's page 914 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along there. Now, when we think about 
who is qualified to serve? This title of the message, qualified to serve. Who is qualified to serve? The first person that comes to your mind when you think about who is qualified to serve may not be yourself. Chances are, when you think of, oh man, who is qualified to serve in some capacity, you may not think, oh, I'm the one that's qualified to serve. And and there's some, some good reasons for that. There's a tendency, especially for Christians, to not see ourselves as qualified to serve. Now, one of the reason is, one reason is that it just, it just doesn't sound right for me to get up here and say, well, I'm, I'm qualified to preach to you. I'm qualified to serve. It, it doesn't sound, it sounds proud. In fact, we've heard people say those things and thought, yeah, you're not qualified. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. But there's another reason, too. Another reason that keeps us from thinking that we are indeed qualified to serve is because of our culture. We live in a culture of specialists. I mean, we have people who are specialized in doing all kinds of different work. If, if you go to a college, you, you see all kinds of ways in which you can study a certain specialty. We have all kinds of specialties. I mean, if you need someone to fix your car, or if you need legal counsel— or if you need some kind of medical treatment, chances are you are going to want a specialist, right? We want the expert. We don't want to just have someone who has some general knowledge. We want to know the, we want to talk to the person that specializes in whatever it is that we need to be addre- needs to be addressed. We look for a specialist. So when we see an opportunity to serve, naturally the first thing that comes to our mind is to say, well, a specialist should do that. And it's only natural to think that we are not qualified unless we have some special training on prayer or some special training on Bible studies or special training on some form of service in some other way. Now, please don't get me wrong. I am all for education. This weekend is the graduation of Rogue Valley Adventist Academy, and we are so proud of our graduates and so proud of each of our students, really, um, not just at Rogue Valley Adventist Academy, but all of our students that are part of our church family, those that are in college, those are at, who are at other schools. Definitely our church is supportive because we believe, Seventh-day Adventist Christians believe in the importance of formal education. We believe in that. Education is so powerful, it increases our usefulness for God. It's so important. But education is not what qualifies us for service. If that were true, Amos would never have been called to ministry. Notice how Amos describes himself in Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel— Two years before the earthquake, so a little um, historical marker there, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Joash, was king of Israel. In future sermons, we're going to talk about the implications of these details, but I just want to bring out something here. When Amos, look how Amos describes himself. He describes himself as one, this is the NIV, New International Version, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. That's, that's the description. Now, he's not giving—when he says, I'm one of the shepherds of Tekoa, he's not giving people a reason to think, oh man, he's really qualified. That's why he's writing this book. That's why he is a prophet, because he's one of the shepherds of Tekoa. No, this would not be a bullet point on a prophet's resume, a shepherd of Tekoa. Although today Christians have a high view of shepherds, we think of Jesus, what he says about himself, how he says, I am the good shepherd. 
right? We think of Psalm 23, how it says, the, the Lord is my shepherd, how David says that. about. We, we have this high view of shepherds, but back in Bible times, this was not a glamorous task. If you were a shepherd, it would be very much like you drawing the short straw. It was something that needed to be done. It was an honorable vocation, but it was not glamorous. People were not lining up to be shepherds. It was a labor-intensive occupation. They had to, oftentimes shepherds were with the sheep in in the open fields, and and they would have to lead them to different places. If they they needed grass, they ran out of grass, they needed to go find it. They needed to to go and and lead the sheep, and they were constantly having to be vigilant um, wherever they were taking them. They were there were predators out there, and, and they, the predators weren't just active during the day. They were also active during the night. To be a shepherd meant that they were with the sheep all the time, which means they were basically homeless. They weren't able to clean themselves like someone who lived in a home. It was, it was a difficult job. It was not a glamorous job. Although being a shepherd required skill, it required intelligence— Shepherds were not considered leaders in society. Like when society needed to make some kind of a decision, they didn't say, you know what? We should consult the shepherds before we move forward. They, they didn't do that. They would consult maybe the religious leaders, maybe the prophets, maybe, maybe the kings or, or princes. Shepherds were not considered leaders in society. Not only was Amos a shepherd, but he was a shepherd from the humble and might I also argue insignificant town of Tekoa. Here's Tekoa. Tekoa is near some significant towns like Jerusalem or Bethlehem. This, this right here is Tekoa. Not much is said in the Bible about Tekoa, and there's a reason for that. It wasn't like Jerusalem where there was this great temple, um, worship of God there, that, that center of worship, Solomon's temple. It wasn't like Bethlehem, the famous hometown of David. No kings came from Tekoa. Uh, It wasn't a religious center. It it wasn't a place that anyone expected a great follower of God to come from. So when Amos says that he's one of the shepherds of Tekoa, he's basically saying, I am a very ordinary person from a very, very ordinary place. And yet God sees him as qualified to serve. God sees ordinary people as qualified to serve. Now, throughout the Bible, we see all kinds of examples of this, of God choosing apparently, seemingly ordinary people for extraordinary acts of service. Give you a few examples. Ruth, there's a book named after her in the Old Testament. Ruth was a widow. She was raised in an idol-worshiping pagan family. She was not even part of the chosen people of God. She was not a Jew. And yet she decided to serve. She decided to serve her mother-in-law, who was a Jew, and she was also a widow. Ruth, as a single woman back in this day, in this society— She was basically powerless. She couldn't own property. She couldn't stand up for herself. She couldn't protect herself. And yet God provided for her. God took care of her. And God worked through in a very powerful way. God provided her with a husband. And they had a child named Obed. And through Obed, the descendants of Obed, the Messiah would come. Pretty significant. Ruth, this humble widow. David. Now we think of David, we think, oh, King David. He was also a shepherd, just like Amos. He was not the oldest of his 
siblings. He was, in fact, the youngest of eight brothers. So he wasn't getting the birthright. He was very, uh, very in a humble place in the family. When people looked at David, they did not say, this is a mighty warrior. They said, this is a little boy. He has no chance fighting against trained fighting, men's much, fighting men, much less a giant. And yet God worked through David to defeat Goliath, this famous story. We know God worked through David to, uh, to lead Israel as their king, to bring Israel to the place of preeminence among other nations that were surrounding there, giving them years of peace and prosperity. And David himself became a figure of the Messiah to come. Most of Jesus' disciples, these were apparently very ordinary men. They lacked formal religious training. Yet God worked through them to establish the church. I mean, even Jesus himself, the Old Testament description of Jesus in Isaiah is that he was a root out of dry ground. That's not a glamorous description. Very much an ordinary appearing person. Jesus was humble. He came from a place that didn't have a spectacular reputation. That was his hometown, Nazareth. It wasn't thought of very highly in his occupation. For most of Jesus' life, he was doing a very ordinary, humble task. He was a manual laborer. Jesus had no formal education. And yet through the humble life of Jesus, God saved the world. God can do some really big things through humble people. Through people who apparently are just very ordinary. You may look in the mirror. And when you look in the mirror, you may not say, now there's a qualified person for service right there. You may not say that. It's probably good that you don't, frankly. Um, but when you look in the mirror, you may not see it. But God looks upon you and he sees someone who has great power, great potential to do great things for his kingdom. God looks at you and he sees someone who is qualified, who can be qualified, I should say, to serve. Not everyone's qualified, but he sees everyone that, it, he sees potential in all of us. We can all be qualified to serve. Because here's what qualifies us. What qualifies us is not how much we know. What qualifies us is not how much we are able to do. What qualifies us is who we know. It's God. If you have a, an experience with God, if God knows you, and if you know him, then you are qualified to serve. But in order to know him and to be known by him, we must be willing. We must be willing to follow him, to follow his lead. What does that mean? Another way of saying being willing to follow his lead is to, is to depend upon God. This means to trust him. In him, to look for where God is leading in your life, to open the Bible and to say, God, please show me. To, to read the Bible and say, God, what you are saying to me, I choose to submit to that. I choose to follow that. I choose to depend upon this. It's prayerfully coming to God and saying, God, please keep my will out of the equation. Keep me from getting distracted by my own thoughts and my own selfish desires that would lead me away from your perfect and wonderful and beautiful plan. It's humbly coming to God, depending upon him. This is how we follow his lead. This is how we become willing. Now, for many of us, dependence, the idea of dependence can be very scary right? Because we can think of all kinds of examples of when dependence was a bad thing. Maybe you depended upon someone and they let you down. Ouch, it hurts, right? 
Um, maybe you have observed, or maybe yourself, you have been emotionally dependent upon someone else, and you've seen that, that manipulation happens in that relationship, or control happens in that relationship. The idea of dependence in these ways can be very scary, and so we think of, of depending in any circumstance. We think, no, I, I don't want to do any of that, but the reality is, is that dependence can also be a very liberating, a very empowering experience. When we do not have Wi-Fi, we start to get a little anxious, <laughs> right? When you, when you open, I don't have my phone here, but you open up your phone and you look at it and there's none, none of that, right? Like there's no, there's no signal. I don't have any signal, right? We are happily dependent on Wi-Fi. Why is that? Because Wi-Fi allows us to stay connected with people that we want to communicate with, that we love, our family. Wi-Fi allows us to connect to information that is so important to our life. Wi-Fi allows us to do work that, that goes along with our business. This is a really important thing to us. We are happily dependent upon Wi-Fi, and when we don't have Wi-Fi, we get nervous. There's a reason why we pay so much money for Wi-Fi. We want to be dependent on it. Why? Because this opens up so much for us. It opens up experience for us. It opens up opportunities for us. When we depend upon God, he opens up opportunities for us. He opens up experience for us. He empowers us. He informs us. He leads us. He directs us in the paths that we should go. When we, when we depend upon God, he saves us from missing out on the blessing of service. This is really important. Now, you don't have to depend upon God in order to serve. But unless you're depending on God when you serve, unless, unless we are trusting in him, looking to him prayerfully, submitting our life to him, asking him to conform our will to his, unless we're experiencing that, it's going to rob us from the beauty of service. Without dependence upon God, all we can do is depend upon ourselves. And how does that typically work out for you? Self-dependence has two major pitfalls that I would like to point out. The first one is the naive belief that if we see injustice happening in our world today, that all we need to do is rally together and pray hard enough. And if we can organize well enough, we can stamp out injustice. Boom, we're going to save this world. That's one perspective of, of pride. Obviously, the problem with that is if you go out and you try to do that, you're going to see that there's always going to be injustice. Why? Because we live in a sinful world. There is injustice. Now, the other side of self-dependence is to say, well, if, it's all, if there's always going to be injustice, if I just go out and, and I serve and, I, and I'm able, I'm able to put an end to injustice, I'm able to, to address this particular problem, I'm able to help this person in need, what's going to happen? Well, there's another need that's going to come up. So what's the point? If there's always going to be injustice, if there's always going to be difficulties, problems, if there's always going to be junk happening out there. What is the point? Let's just circle our wagons as Seventh-day Adventist Christians here in church. Let's stop looking without and start looking within and just make sure we're okay. When we're not depending upon God, we can have a cynicism when it comes to calling for justice. Or we can have a naivety to think, oh, we can figure this whole thing out. Dependence upon God saves us from being tripped up 
by pride and, and being discouraged by self-dependence. Success, when we're dependent upon God, success does not go to our heads because we give him the glory. When we're dependent upon God, failure or being rejection doesn't discourage us. Why? Because the reason we are doing what we are doing is not for our own benefit. The reason we are doing it is because God says it, and we're simply depending upon him. People might look at Amos and say, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, that kind of disqualifies you. But that's actually what qualified him. He was humble, and he was willing to trust God regardless of the reception that he would get. And as we read into the book of Amos, we're going to see that the reception was not great. And yet Amos served faithfully and did not miss out on the experience because he depended on God. When we're dependent upon God, our only concern is to follow God wherever he leads. And in Amos 1 verse 1, God tells us, he he tells us there, the Bible tells us, how God led Amos. I'm going to put it up on the screen so we don't miss it. This is how God led Amos. The words that Amos spoke, the ministry of Amos, was was birthed, what came out of an experience that he had. It says that, that the words that he spoke came from the vision that he saw concerning Israel. Amos saw a perspective that was unique. He saw a picture. God gave him insight. God gave him a picture of what he wanted him to do, and Amos conformed his will to that picture, even though it was difficult. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting that unless you have a prophetic vision that God is leading. You don't have to have a prophetic vision for God to be leading your life. Now, he could give you a prophetic vision, but more often than not, what God does is that he impresses upon our hearts. He gives us some kind of a picture. He shows us, he helps us to see something that needs to be done. We're going about life, and all of a sudden we see something that needs to be done, some, some way in which we, he's calling us to serve. Have you ever been going about your day, and suddenly you thought of someone who needed encouragement? In a sense, God gave you a vision. God gave you a picture of what service looked like. He, he was calling you. Or perhaps you become aware of someone who needs help. Maybe they need some insight. Maybe they need your, your actual, you know, physical presence. Maybe they're moving. You need to go, go help them move. God gives you a picture of what needs to happen. Oh, that person needs help. I see work that needs to be done there. Perhaps some ministry needs to be helped in, in church. Maybe you see the Jim Gregg down in community service. He's struggling away. He needs, needs to, somebody should help. Well, God is showing you what needs to be done. Maybe there's a, a Sabbath school class where you see a teacher just faithfully teaching, but no one else is in there helping. Maybe God's showing you to, this is something that he's calling you to do. Maybe you see someone who's lonely and, and someone who really needs a friend. As, as a pastor, people from time to time come up to me and say, Pastor, something should be done about this. I see that there's a need here. And my response is, well, God may be calling you. This is how God works. He gives us a picture. He gives us vision. He gives us insight. He helps us to see. He opens our eyes to see needs that he's calling us to meet. And when we humbly accept his leading, he qualifies us. In the 1970s, 
this lady right here. Her name is Carol Simbola. She helped her, her husband, Jim, start a church in Brooklyn, New York. There were only 15 members when they first started this church in the 1970s. And yet, Carol, she saw that there was potential among these few members for a choir. And so she rounded up all the people that she possibly could, which turned out to be about nine individuals. Some of them were tone deaf, but she saw that there was potential for a choir. Now, she loved music, and, and she loves music, and, and has uh, had some experience, some very limited experience, leading a small little choir. But Carol Simbola had no formal music training. When I, when I say she had no formal music training, I mean she did not read music. And she did not write music. But she was willing. And so she prayed. By the way, she was also really afraid of being up front. She's a really shy lady. Um, but she, so she prayed. She prayed for courage. She prayed for God to, to, to strengthen her. And so she got her nine, her nine uh, willing people together. And she began to lead them. They began to sing. Now, leading out in this choir was very difficult for her. Challenges in her own personal life came up from time to time, and she would get so discouraged. She would often think, why me? Why why doesn't someone else do this? I just want to give up. But instead of giving up, Carol kept praying. She continued to depend upon the one who had given her this vision of a choir. And God continued to give her the strength to move forward. Little by little, her choir grew. And Carol began to arrange music. She could hear harmonies in her head. And even though she wasn't able to, to write them down, um, and, and she wasn't able to read them, even if they were written down, she would, she would pass them on to her choir. She would write up these musical arrangements in her mind. And even though people would look at her and say, or could look at her and say, you know, Carol you are really unqualified. I mean, you don't have any formal music training. You're really unqualified to lead a choir. Even though she might have been tempted to think that, the truth is, today, this choir is known as the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. And this choir has blessed people all around the world. Why? Because God qualifies people who are willing. She was willing. She was willing to depend upon God's leading in her life. She prayed instead of giving up, and God blessed her. God has a plan for you, each one of us, a a really big plan. And he's at work in you right now to give you insight, to show you things that need to be done in this church and in this world. He's at work. He's pointing it out. He's, he's working to show you how he's calling you to serve. He's giving you a picture of his will. Now, of course, every time we think of some idea, every time some idea pops into our mind, that does not mean it's God's will. Let me just make that really clear. Every idea that you have, it doesn't mean that it's, it's from the Holy Spirit. But if we are willing to seek after God, if we're willing to read the Bible and say, God, show me from the Bible what you are saying to me. Help me to understand it. If, if you're willing to pray and say, God, I want to know what is true. And if you're willing to seek counsel from other people, seasoned people who are followers of Jesus, 
then God is going to show you clearly a picture of his will. He's going to give you a vision. He's going to give you insight. He's going to show you things that are going to make a huge difference for the kingdom of God in this world, that are going to be a blessing to you and a blessing to so many other people. God is at work calling ordinary people like me and like you. Pardon me for calling you ordinary. But he is at work in our lives. He's wanting to show us a picture of where to go. He's wanting to lead in our life. And when he shows you, you can know for sure that you are qualified to serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your power that just by knowing you, we're suddenly qualified. God, forgive us for our willfulness. Forgive us for our self-dependence, which hasn't done anything positive for us or anyone else. Forgive us for doggedly going after that. I pray, God, for a humble heart like Amos, who will just recognize that you do great things, extraordinary things through ordinary people. Thank you for your power in our life. And I pray that you would open our eyes to the ways in which you are calling each one of us to serve right now. Forgive us, God, for not wanting to be qualified. May we take you at your word that you will qualify us. In Jesus' name. Amen.